got friends, only wanna talk business. I got expenses, cause when is expensive. I got expenses, cause when is expensive. I've been reading all the work. And I've been shutting out the stars. Yeah, cause when it rain, then it pours. Yeah, and I'm ready for some more. Yeah, and I've been reading all the work. And welcome to Put That Copy Down, this audio podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Hill. As always, this is a freight sales podcast for closers. We have a special guest with us today. It is Bart DeMunk, and he is the chief industry officer over at Project 44. How are you doing today, Bart? I'm doing great, Kevin. How are you? I'm doing great, too. So I, I want to kick it off. I have a question of question for you. Uh, maybe the most important question that I ask all afternoon. What does a chief industry officer, what, what is that? Great. I wish I could tell you. No, honestly, <laughs> um, I, I think part of that chief industry officer has obviously that term industry in it. Uh, part of that means you're old and you've been in the industry for a while. That's how you get that title. But I think it was it's pretty clever because I didn't come up with it. I wish I could say I did. But actually, um, um, Project 44 came up with it. And what they wanted to do is, yeah, have a title, but that's still kind of within it, kind of kept uh, kind of my experience in the industry. So without saying, well, Bart now has become from being an industry expert and, and an analyst and research advisor with Gardner to all of a sudden come in this completely different role is how do you keep that, but yet uh, use it in a different way uh, at Project 44. But really what my role is, and it's kind of twofold. At, at one part, uh, I really use kind of my industry expertise, and I still do a lot of research to really help our company internally with help and guiding around product and strategy, but also work with the go-to-market team to say, how do we position our products? And now a lot of it is thought leadership, talking about topics, talking to people in the industry like yourself, um, going to a lot of events. I speak at a lot of these events as well. So that's one part of the job. And then the other part of the job is, is really using the supply chain experience when it comes to larger accounts to make sure that when we go to that um, customer or that prospect, that we really understand what it is they're asking, right? I think what you see a lot with technology vendors, and I saw that when I was at PepsiCo, that, you know, a customer says, I want ABC. And the technology vendor goes, I exactly understand what you need. You need DEF. And they're really not talking the same language. So it's how do you translate that from kind of the supply chain business need in something we internally understand, but then vice versa. How do we really talk about the value we create uh, as a partner to them? And how do we make that in a way that they can understand? So when they walk out or when we come in with a meeting and they say, what does Project 44 stand for? This is what it is. Rather than oh, here's this technology vendor. We don't really understand the solution because we see that a lot, right? There's so much technology out there, Kevin, that people are sometimes confused about what these vendors all do. I, I think sometimes the vendors are confused about, about what the, the client work wants. And when you say chief industry officer, that second part, certainly the, the first part resonates. So the, the second part is what I always envision, right? Is It's being an expert on, on how to how to speak with shippers, how to speak the same language, how to really identify what they need, because they might say we need ABC, but they might not really know what they need. But the vendor might say, well, here's DEF, because they don't understand what ABC is, or they don't have ABC. So you have a lot of miscommunications in in the tech world sometimes, because really every every piece of technology it needs to be applied in a very custom or bespoke way from one shipper to the next. There's no cookie cutter type of operational system that crosses uh, across industry lines, but but certainly in the same vertical, right? You, you might have five retail cut, retail shippers who are operating in five wildly different ways, and they might all need ABC, but they need it in five wildly different ways. Yeah, and even their ABC isn't always the same, right? Because you go and ask 10 different people, what is visibility to you? You will get 10 different answers. <laughs> so that is why I would say when I come in, I don't talk about visibility, right? Mm -hmm. I come in and say, hey, you guys, let's say it's a retailer. You're a retailer, you're in the US, maybe you're in apparel retail, whatever it is. I should pretty much know what your problems are. 
and what your business drivers are. So I can go in and instead of saying, oh, tell me for an hour what it is you do. Tell me for now what your problems are. I pretty much know it, right? Mm -hmm. I want to listen and see if I get it right. But I can come in saying, I think you guys are struggling with X, Y, Z. This is what you what the focus is. Maybe inventory levels are too high. So your business driver is, how do I lower my inventory levels? How do I improve customer experience? How do I create more operational efficiency and lower cost? If we can start with that, as we all agree on that, we know, obviously on our side, we know how we can turn uh, the value or what we need to create that value for the customer. So now it's like you're approaching it with a, in a different perspective rather than having to maybe waste a lot of time coming in and saying, can you tell me what it is you guys need? And they don't really know. And we don't really know how to fill it in with solutions. And maybe at the end, you still don't know. No, it's all based on value. It's based on business drivers. And then we can figure out what the solutions are that companies need. And obviously further down, they'll want to know exactly what those solutions are and how it impacts them. But the conversation, especially this year, Kevin, it'll be around value because you see it left and right in the news. You guys reported as well, right? I mean, companies are hurting. Cash flows are hurting. And to be honest, at the end of the day, who's going to sign for any new project, even in technology? It's not the chief supply chain officer. It's not someone on the logistics side. It's going to be the CFO. And you know what? That CFO understands two things, P&L and balance sheet. So you better be able to kind of tell them what is this value and how does it translate into dollars that you're helping me on my profit, help me drive revenue, help me take some of these things off my balance sheet. That's really important. And that's a way different um, conversation than talking about solution and then trying to figure out if my solution fits your need. Yeah, I think that's, that's one of the, the, the killer mistakes salespeople make, especially on the enterprise level, when they walk in and say, can you tell me a little bit about your business? What, what, what's your pain points, right? It's something you should already know. You should know before you walk in there, you should have a very good guess at what it is because it's what their competitors are, are battling with as well. Their competitors might be doing a better job at it. They might be doing a worse job at it, but you know the, the broad outlines. So instead of starting with, um, tell me a little bit about your business, you should be able to, to walk in and talk shop about what their business does, how they operate, what space they're in, be able to talk their game, their, their jar, jargon before you bring in any solution because you just you need to earn that trust and earn that credibility by going in and talking to the talking their language, not learning their language on the fly, because you're just not going to get anywhere like that. Yeah, and and obviously you don't want to come come in there and kind of try and show off, right, about sure. everything you know. But they want to kind of know that you understand their business, because otherwise mm -hmm. you're probably not a good partner to them. And I think you know, and I've said this before, right, on the show, it's like you never get a second chance to make a first impression. And to be honest, it's the truth, right? Whether it's in our social life or it's in business, when you come in there and you make maybe a quick mistake up front or something small that you think like, yeah, that's, that wasn't that important. I missed that, but might be a big thing. I mean, I heard it all the time, even when I was a, an advisor, right? Where companies go like, yeah, we had XYZ vendors come in and we go like, why did that vendor not do well? Because we know their solutions and they're typically very, very good. And they go, well, the guys came in. They were completely unprepared. And then they showed us a PowerPoint presentation. Had the logo on there, probably from the previous company they just visited. Mm -hmm. and, and even if it's a good company with a good solution, it just gives companies a bad taste in their mouth, right? And, and no matter how, what you sell, whether it's brokerage services, you know, you're a carrier providing services, you're a technology vendor, you are a partner to that company. And so in the way you approach that, a lot of times it's still a human element. I mean, on the consumer side, we've gone away. We don't want to talk to people. I, I know for sure I don't want to have to call someone. I go like, can I not do that through the app? <laughs> but that's me as a consumer. When I do business, I'm much rather talk to the person and, and have that relationship. And I think that's very important. You know, there are more complex problems, more complex solutions, and certainly a higher price tag associated with that. So you do want that face-to-face -face, um, time, right, to, to, to earn 
not to earn that, well, to earn the trust on one side and, and develop trust on, on the other. I think, um, then coming in and you said, you know, shooting off uh, how much you know isn't the best approach. But, but the more you know, the better questions you can ask. And I think a lot of buyers, I'm one of those buyers, I'm impressed by good questions, not by 20-minute presentations about how much you, how great your company is or how great your solution is or how great you are. Asking really good questions that make me think and make me examine and walk me down through the journey, that's where the the, the, re, the that pre-research, those that that knowledge, that's where it really shines. Absolutely right. If you do your preparation, you come in and you already know the basics, then you can go and ask some very pointed questions, right? Go like, hey, I know in this industry we're facing with XYZ. Now, what specific on your side, what do you see or what else do you see out there that we haven't rather than starting from scratch. So it's going to give you two things, right? It's going to create that credibility and, and people will feel like, huh, this guy knows what he's talking about. But secondly, you get to the point much quicker. And, you know, we're all busy, right? And how much better is it that you go in there as a vendor of any service or technology or product and you can do a 20-minute meeting rather than an hour because you've kind of been talking around stuff mm-hmm. rather than coming to the point saying, hey, I think this is what you need. Here's the value we present. And by the way, this is how we think we can be the best partner to get you to that value. Much shorter conversation. Uh, there doesn't need to be a lot of hula la and there doesn't need to be a lot of, hey, we're the best. Hey, guess what? I've done a lot of NQs in my life and market guides. I can truly say there is no best vendor. There is only a best suited partner for what it is you need. And that's not just based on the solution or the service you offer. It's based on a lot of different things, culture, could be one of them. And I've seen in the past many companies that said, you know what? We thought that was the right company for us with the right solution. We didn't like their culture. And so we decided to go with a different solution. Um, And people sometimes forget that. People sometimes think that it is too objective because a lot of companies do an RFP, but it's not all about just checking the boxes and filling in the data points. It's one of the dangers of the RFP process. Isn't it? It's you're going. You're talking about procurement. Procurement is is focused a lot of times on price. I mean, there there is service involved in that, but but the whole philosophy of procuring at the lowest price or or the the, the it's not necessarily the best fit. It is more buyer based. I, I believe so. Um, it's a little bit like. Um, uh, you know, people that, that are whatever the apps they use, right? And I'm, I'm lucky that I met my wife many, many years ago. I never had to use a dating app. But where you put in like your characteristics, right? Mm-hmm. The way you describe yourself in flat on 2D or in an app versus who you are. Does that really give people a 3D all-encompassing picture of who Kevin is? It's almost impossible to do that if you just look at, at certain data facts Uh, on a piece of paper, right? And I think that's something that companies need to understand. There's a lot of aspects when you're going to look for a solution and you're working with a partner, different aspects and vice versa, the vendor themselves, the partner needs to understand how to position that to a customer and and make sure that all of those facets, right, are enabled. Similar, for example, as a customer, don't just look at what it is you need today. Look for a partner that can help you not just today, but five years down the line. Um, because again, you're making decisions. And yes, I would say with the advent of cloud solutions and platforms, it's a little bit easier to exchange systems rather than being bolted in like an on-premise type of solution. But I think there's less appetite from companies to do best of breed and just change things out if they don't have to. Now, if, if obviously the service isn't there, they will. But I think people are much more looking for a longer term relationship. Same with, you know, trucking, right? If I have a, a company that has fair rates, has the highest quality, why would I ever want to go away from mm-hmm. that partner? Yeah, it, it goes even, well, even in the tech world. But in the tech world, you can have the greatest tech, but if you have the lousiest service, you're not going to, to, to win a lot of deals. Because it's just highly customized, right? It's a customized solution. It's a journey. You talked about five years, looking about that journey in five years, because the, the decision based today is based on growth. 
Yeah. Everything is based on growth. Uh, how can you grow with us? And that's an important part of the, the, the equation. Yeah, I would say for us, because we're a platform, we're not an application provider. It's a little bit different. Like, you know, in general, we don't customize, right? We might do additional things for customers and, and are able to extend solutions pretty easily the way it's architected. But in general, because we are a platform and it needs to be collaborative for everyone on the platform, mm -hmm. by definition, you want to have a solution that works for everyone, right? Um, it's not like something that's kind of inter company like a warehouse management system or even transportation management system. This is something that's collaborative because you're pulling information from suppliers, customers, 3PLs, carriers, all of those companies. Mm -hmm. So the, the more it's a platform that everyone accesses and uses in the same way, the stronger platform, same like the telephone company, right? Now it's a little bit different because everyone goes like all in package for next to nothing. Remember the day when you used to pay for minutes, right? Like transactional, mm -hmm. like what a lot of these solutions are. You went on AT&T because everyone, including your grandma, your grandpa was on AT&T. And then you didn't have to pay for minutes because they were included if you called AT&T to AT&T. But we're all maybe had a little bit of a different telephone, but we all used the same service. And someone said, well, I just use calling. And someone said, oh, and I have data as well, or I have texting. Uh, those are the extras, right, that you can put on, but you use it. And that's important if you're a network and a platform because it makes, again, instead of this hard effort to implement, it makes the technology very consumable from a point of view. It makes it easier to not just implement it, but also to use it widely across all the people in your company rather than two guys who had to go to training for two years. And to be honest, I had that in the 90s. When I went mm -hmm. to Manugistics, and um, learned about TMS. I was in a room for over a week, right? And I came back, turned my computer on, and I go like, how do you start this thing again? Now we have people <laughs> that use like our solution, uh, right? Mm -hmm. Visibility. You don't need training for that. It's intuitive. It's like Facebook and LinkedIn. Have, have you been trained on that, Kevin? I have not, no. And yet we use it, right? Yes. And somehow it works. We might not know all the capabilities, but it has to be intuitive. It has to be easily usable by everyone. It does. It really does have to be intuitive. Uh, do you think a lot of tech companies in the, the space are not intuitive? In in and, and I won't ask you. I mean, as sometimes whenever I survey around and freight tech, and I see uh, see companies, they're, they're speaking a language that their, their customers don't speak. You know. And I, I, I just think that some sometimes there's a disconnect of what what is the actual solution and what is the technology. You're absolutely right, and you know I was a user of some of those systems. Mm -hmm. I you know obviously when I was uh, with Gartner, I saw all of the systems right from the smallest to the largest vendors. And sometimes you have the disadvantage if you've been in the industry for a long time is that you have to bring along some older technology. And you go like, well, do you want the latest and greatest, like this brand new vendor? It's not always that easy to say, I'm going to reformat everything. It's like if you build a house, Kevin, 30 years ago, wouldn't you want to have the latest and greatest plumbing and electricity? But you're not going to go like, well, every 10 years, you're going to tear this thing down completely and put in mm -hmm. the latest PVC piping and the latest whatever Ethernet uh, category six, seven, I don't know what, maybe they're at version 1 million now uh, for faster internet. The thing is you have to upgrade it, but it's not always possible to completely rearrange the architecture. And sometimes it's more limited to maybe upgrading the user experience or the user interface. The other part that we see with large, very large companies is they grew through acquisition, right? We've done some acquisitions and with our movement platform, we've actually put a lot of work into bringing all of that on a single database with a single user um, experience around it. So you truly have visibility end to end across all of the modes. But again, if you're a much larger application provider, that isn't always the case, right? And there's some very clear examples of companies out there that have been doing that. Um, I think Manhattan is a good example that started with WMS and OMS and then uh, TMS and their planning systems as well, Blue Yonder the same. But those are multi, multi-year journeys that cost many, many, I'll probably say hundreds of millions of dollars mm -hmm. to re-architect that. And unfortunately, 
not everyone is as successful as though those two companies I just mentioned. So sometimes they just don't have the funds to upgrade. And so you go and look in that system and you go like, why does this system still feel like, you know, Windows NT, right? Or like an old, old system? Mm -hmm. Because they are, because they are an older architecture and they don't just have the means to do to do an upgrade. If we um, put visibility aside for for a second, uh, what, what do you think in the, the freight tech space or, or the needs uh, of businesses and technology? What do you think is the the, the most interesting? Kind well, of I think more? one of the biggest challenges I've always seen. Right, we we work in logistics in an industry that is requiring companies to really work together. Right, whereas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have that in other parts. Like in manufacturing, yeah, you need to work with your suppliers for the products to come in. But like warehousing, it's kind of mainly internal and there's product coming in and out. But to execute logistics in general, you work with so many different partners. But the problem has always been if you compare shippers, right, whether that's a manufacturer, a wholesaler, or distributor, or retailer, and then you see the 3PLs or some of those 4PLs or 5PLs, and then you see the trucking companies and you see the mm-hmm. brokers, the problem is they are at completely different levels of maturity when it comes to the use of technology. And that's always been hard, right? So I think the first challenge is we need to bring people kind of a level set of using the same technology. Otherwise, it's never going to work very efficiently. And I will say, I've seen massive improvements the last few years. You've talked to a lot of brokers. We see massive improvements in the technologies they're using, right? These Mm -hmm. guys are not just going like, hey, I can get you a truck, but they're like, hey, we're using APIs. What broker would have said that 10 years ago? I, I know, right? Like, like 10 years ago, even five years ago, if you look at it, you know, you had the tech brokerages and legacy brokerages or normal brokerages. But but now, and then you have brokerages running legacy systems. Now you can start a freight brokerage and have the, the highest grade technology just off the shelf. Yeah. You know, end to end solution to what, what 10 years ago would have cost you tens of millions of dollars to build in house. It had to be proprietary. You can uh, go month to month in, in a lot of that or an annual subscription in, in the cloud and and have the latest, greatest technology out there. Yeah, absolutely true. Right. And that's why we continue seeing so many new brokerages mm-hmm. come to market. Right. Or in last month, we see so many new companies coming to market. Why? Because it's very easy for them to adopt the technologies to run their business. And so we are kind of in a more democratized environment where whether you're a small company or a large company, everyone can use a system. Right? You can um, go to the free TMS.com and get a TMS for free. It's mm-hmm. it's cheaper than as a consumer. Like I pay for Spotify, right? <laughs> yeah. You can get that for free. Isn't mm-hmm. that incredible that you can have business software for free? But it allows people to adopt more. And the more there's adoption of technology, the more it advances the industry as a whole. And so, as I said, where we saw that with shippers starting 30 years ago when it was multi-millions of dollars for these solutions to now getting to free solutions. Now we see 3PLs getting more solutions, brokers getting more solutions. The carriers, finally, we're starting to see a lot of vendors also focusing on the carriers and and carriers having the ability to use uh, systems as well that make their life a lot better, especially those small carriers that, Mm -hmm. you know, they say mom and pop or even to just pop carriers, right? Where the guy, Mm -hmm. he's the sales guy, he's the accountant, he's the driver, he's everything, right? How do I do kind of like my back office work? How can I do that as efficiently as possible? Maybe during my rest breaks, I just do it on an app. Right. Mm-hmm. And more automated. And I send you out of the app uh, an electronic bill of lading and I got my money in the bank that same day. Right. Rather than yeah. now we see shippers with 90 day payment terms. Kevin, can you understand that with all yeah. the issues we have in the industry? 90 day payment terms. Right. Some of these guys are going like, how do I pay for fuel tomorrow? Right. For my next mm-hmm. shipment. Right. If I don't get paid today, uh, which is also a reason why we've seen, you know, factoring or. Uh, companies like Triumph, right, uh, mm-hmm. as a bank doing very well because of that industry. So there's still a lot we need to do. I think technology can enable that and accelerate some of these processes. And I think we're on a good way because there is more visibility to it. We create more transparency to it. And I think people have more of a mindset like, hey, let's automate what we can and make everyone's life better. 
yeah, I, I've been talking about automation quite a bit with a number of people. It's, 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 it's fulfilling jobs that people, you know, I won't say they don't want, but they don't enjoy. They, they burn out. You have turnover because it's uh, cookie-cutter jobs, maybe data entry. And, uh, you know, it's a lot of human mistakes in that because employees are often disengaged by that nature of work. Um, well, I'll say, uh, you know, reverse logistics is fascinating. You know, the, the returns game, I, mm-hmm. I think, is just a wide open space that um, that, that is going to be uh, lucrative for for some companies that, that get into it and into it right. It's a, it's a massive business, right? And it's still, I'd say it's becoming more efficient because I think there, there's uh, been more focus because mm-hmm. for retailers, reverse logistics and returns in that area, for example, not that on retail, it's the only part, right? Because you can have, even in business to business, a whole truckload and yep. a product, like we, we had that at PepsiCo, you have a whole truckload, maybe the product is damaged or something wrong, or let's say you're a beer company, you're driving through a snow blizzard. By the time you get there, all your beer in the truck is frozen and it's spoiled. But but mainly in retail, we see a lot of technologies. I was just at NRF a couple of weeks ago where you see companies really having a, a focus on returns and automating that. And the other part is we need to do it more intelligently um, because, for example, sustainability isn't just on how you get it to the customer, but also how do we get it as sustainably back but then there's whole, also the whole aspect of circular economy, right? Uh, which means it's also part of returns, but it's not just, hey, I, I return it. Then the question is, how do I box it? And is that packaging, is that sustainable? But it could also be, Kevin, where you bought maybe that monitor behind you, right? You bought mm-hmm. that maybe a couple of years ago. Where's that going to be in five years? Maybe it's broken, right? You want to yeah. return it, but instead of just putting it on the curb and someone picking it up, you will send that back to wherever you bought it or to the manufacturer who will then kind of take it apart and reuse components like what Apple does with their mm-hmm. product. Or maybe if you have Ralph Lauren, you send it back to them and they reuse the, the textile, maybe even for a secondhand or yeah. m- more likely they will use you know the, the fabric to create a new uh, garment out of it. Mm-hmm. So we have to think think through that a lot more efficiently. And especially if we see some of the materials, especially in things like electronics or cars, where we're starting to to deplete some of the raw materials, we have to reuse them, right? We can't just keep throwing away stuff. We can't just keep burying in the ground. We need to do that a lot smarter. And like you said, technology will help with that and help automate that. It will. It will. And, and the reverse looks just, I, I, I'm just fascinated by it now. All the returns and and all the retailers and direct consumer companies, all the startups competing on the, the less friction, being able to order things and bring them back. And, uh, you know, oftentimes it's 10 times more expensive to, to send it back and um, and kind of the hit it takes. But I, I think they're, they're still coming out on top with that just because the removing the friction and increasing brand awareness and uh, working with the brand, it increases revenue so much. So I, it, it's, it just over the last few weeks, it's, it's just been fascinating to me. Yeah. And obviously part of that, you see cost going up, right? I think globally, the average cost of a parcel is around $10. But if you have a missed uh, delivery or you have a return that goes up to $18, mm-hmm. right? And that's part of the problem where companies see that cost of that last mile go up, 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 especially also because we're going faster, faster, faster. And like you said, a lot of people don't want to buy something if if there's not free returns. But then again, as a consumer, do we really make the right decision if we know we can just send it back for free? I go go like, yeah, I don't know if I really want it, but let me try it. And if I don't like it, I just can send it back. So I think there has to be also a way that... I always think, and that's just my personal opinion, that we've gone a little too crazy with how fast we order stuff. And if we keep going, it, I always say jokingly, Amazon will ship you stuff before you even ordered it, right? If we could keep going that fast. But the other part is there is a way that we can put things in place that make consumers think about what they order and how they order and then how fast they want it. And I think if we give them transparency into the data to really understand how it affects, for example, from a CO2 emissions perspective, 
they're probably going to make a different decisions. But if we're just going to say, you can have it anywhere you want, at any time you want, and at any speed you want, we just are, you know, kind of promoting bad behavior. Mm -hmm. It does. It does promote that bad behavior. Um, Let's talk about the pandemic and kind of how tech evolved, especially in logistics during the pandemic. And when we look back on 2020, 2021, 10 years from now, uh, is it going to be kind of a little bit of a golden age or a transformative time for, for this industry? Well, I, I think it's a little bit like when we talk now about the recession in 2008, right? And we, we got a lot of learnings from that. I think it's going to be similar. But I think what, um, what you'll see different is I, I truly think that when people look at the pandemic and obviously as a social effect, it's, it's the most horrible thing in our generation, mm-hmm. right? I think most of us uh, weren't part of World War One and Two, right? Or some of the, these other events that had mass impact and uh, killed many, many millions of people around the world. Um, we see that now. But besides that, the impact it had on supply chains, uh, the adoption rate that has increased of technology because of it, the the way it forced people to think differently. And instead of kind of that linear thinking, think more on their feet, kind of forward looking. Uh, and in real time, that has changed. And I think that's probably what we'll look back on in 10 years when we look back at, at this point. And I'm hoping that we'll see a lot of things have accelerated. And then we already see that with some technologies where we thought we would be by 2025, we're already there. It accelerated kind of a lot of companies' digital transformation in general, and it will continue to do so. I, it, it did. A lot of, uh, a lot of things, you know, work from home, a, a good example, you know, nice to have turned into must have. Must do right. So a lot of uh, a lot of companies, especially in the logistics space, conservative com- conservative companies, they might not want to be the first one out testing things. That changed during p- the pandemic, I believe, to where it wasn't something that would be nice to have or something that was experimental. It overnight, it just we must have this to carry forward through this. Through this period, and yeah, and of course, you know, everyone had that luxury, rates. right, Kevin? Yeah, it not wasn't everyone, a luxury like, anymore. Yeah, like in India, you heard companies said we have all these people in India. They don't have laptops at home. They might not even have internet at home. So how can they work from home mm-hmm. because they don't have the tools like they would in the office? I will say though, um, uh, you know, kind of on the cusp of, of sounding controversial, I think a lot of companies want their people to come back to the office. Because they don't all see necessarily a lot of productivity out of having everyone working home all the time. Um, I hear it when talking to universities who work with also their um, business partners in that Mm -hmm. conversation where they give a lot of input. They do a lot of studies around it. We see it as well. A lot of large companies, they're trying to get their people to come back to the office. By the way, they're paying a lot of money for those offices, two to three days a week. And it's very hard to get the people to come back to work because now they're used to working from home, can work in your pajamas. You don't have to get ready. That's half an hour to an hour saved in the morning. You don't have to drive to work. That in some instances, another hour that you save. By mm-hmm. the way, if you live like where I live in the Dallas area, probably spend 10 to 20 bucks on toll roads a day mm-hmm. and gas per day. So there's a lot of other impacts that all add up at the end of the day, plus the, the stress that you have from being in traffic going to work. But on the other hand, I will say, Kevin, I truly believe this. People want to work from home, but the problem is they kind of lose touch with their company because if yep. they never go to well, where is really that stickiness? And that's what I kind of see as well is that when people, when they want to work from home and companies let them work from home and they're very grateful for that, but then they leave anyway because mm-hmm. there is no way to really feel attached to that company. And you very quickly lose that. Um, we actually um, brought all our people in North America together for a Christmas party end of December. And it was incredible to see because it's the first time we had so many people from the whole U.S. all coming together. And you go like, wow, isn't that incredibly powerful to have that many? I mean, we had not enough seats at our uh, HQ in Chicago, although we can host Mm -hmm. 300 people. There were way more than 300 people there. And just the energy, you just don't see that anymore, right? The energy is literally tangible and it drives so much collaboration 
Mm-hmm. And I still think, and, and unfortunately, I'm on the road a lot. So unfortunately, when I go and travel, it's mainly to events or to customers. But the few times I go in the office, I go in the office, the, the days that the office is the busiest, and I go talk to folks. But it's just incredibly powerful to say, hey, let's do a meeting, even if it's an hour, two hours, and we'll collaborate. I think personally, there's nothing more powerful than that, right? Because Zoom, it's great. But only for so much. Only for so much. Only for I, I do miss uh, the, the collaboration and uh, the, the learning. You know, learning from everybody around me every single day, right? And you do feel a little bit isolated, um, out of out of contact with a company, especially if you get hired remotely. You've never met anybody during a year of your tenure there. Uh, you, you do feel disconnected from your company and, you know, kind of that, that culture, that vibe, that energy is, is lacking. So I, I think it'll be interesting over the next two or three years to, to see how that plays out. Yeah. And, and my thing is, if you look at it from a biological perspective, I truly believe people are social animals, right? Mm-hmm. We are by nature not individualists, although a lot of us might have kind of that type of role in an organization, but we are meant to be around other people and to work with other people, right? And sometimes mm-hmm. in a business, it's like when you see in the summer, the skyline, you see those birds, you remember those birds that yeah, are like yeah. a million of them at the same time. And they, mm-hmm. it looks like they make these figures, yeah. right? It's sometimes if you have that and you can organize that with a company where you have thousands or hundreds of thousands of people working, truly working together and all moving in the same direction, that's incredibly powerful. And unfortunately, we lose some of that when everyone's just, you know, distributed and they're all working on their own, there, there's, it's a lot harder to pass along kind of both social as well as professional experience. Uh, also, when you hire new people, right? Mm-hmm. It's like some people that maybe got hired during COVID. They've never met anyone at the office. They've never even been to the office. Mm-hmm. And, and you hear that. I hear that because I ask them. They feel like they miss out. And then when they do get now the chance to come to the office, they do say, hey, it's, it's, I'm so happy to be able to be here and to meet people and to see them face to face. And it's like, you are real. You're not just that that one-dimensional picture yeah. out there. You actually exist. It is powerful. It is powerful. I, I think there'll be some business in some industry. It might not be logistics. It could be uh, you know, probably some tech company somewhere. Um, we'll buck the trend and have everybody in an office and it'll be a competitive advantage that puts them over the hump. And I, I think some of this will, the, the sentiment will change a little bit. I, I think, I think that's going to happen sometime in the next three or four years. Who knows what industry or what vertical, yeah. I don't know, but I, I, I think, I, I think there's going to be a reversion to the mean. I think so as well. And you got to remember with, with, for example, the new uh, graduate, right, from universities coming mm-hmm. into uh, the industry as well, those people, when schools were going from remote back to in-person, most of those students went back and went back to in-person. Yeah. And so they are used to being the last year or more than a year, being in-person, in-class with other people. They don't necessarily go to a company, start their professional career, and then all of a sudden be completely away from that again, yeah. right? So, um, so yeah, I think you have to find the right balance. I think it's going to be a little bit different, not just per company. I think it's also different um, for the type of role. There are some roles that are maybe more suited to um, be remote and others. Like if you're in logistics and you're in operations, right? Like you're a dispatcher at a brokerage or something, mm-hmm. you probably want to be in the office, yes. right? Um, but when you maybe are on the IT side, you're like a database administrator, you can, if you have contact or you have the, the linkage into your systems, you can mm-hmm. probably do that easily from home. Yes, you can. Yeah. So th- there are some, some, some positions that are, are suited for at home, um, regional salespeople as well, right? They're, they're, they're accustomed to, to working from home, but I think that there should be an core office group. 
I, I think yeah. I, I think a core yeah. office group makes a lot of sense. I, I will say that I, I do see companies as well changing their infrastructure, right? So where they had like uh, offices with fixed desks, then now they're making it kind of like more where mm-hmm. you don't have your own desk anymore, right? It's more like like a hotel. You kind of book it, and they can pull your stuff in and out. Um, so we we do see that, so they can have a smaller footprint and be more efficient, right? You don't want to have an office for two thousand people. And then on average, there's 200 people in there. It just doesn't make sense. And fortunately, with real estate, a lot of these companies have long leases, right? A lot of them, you hear eight-year leases, Mm 10-year leases. So real estate is a high cost, and it's one that you can't just immediately get out of, right? So making that decision, you have to, unfortunately, also look at it from a cost perspective. Hey, I'm paying for this piece of asset. We want to make sure we also use the asset. You do, you, you do. So uh, work from home. So this is, so I, I think it's it is a it, it's an interesting concept. I mean, I, I was all for it in twenty twenty. I, I thought it was a, a, a good move. Everyone was very productive. Um, we'll see how it pans out uh, in twenty twenty three and twenty twenty four. If we go, especially in the freight markets, if we have a down freight market, um, will will that productivity keep on roaring through it's a, it's an interesting question yeah things things keep changing right i mean a year ago uh you would go to a conference and there was hardly anyone there mm-hmm. or at least no shippers technology vendors were there yeah, yeah. logistic providers were there look at the end of the year look at freight waves f3 right i mean record attendance right mm-hmm. everyone's there and you can feel the energy people just love seeing the other people oh yeah um and i see it non-stop i mean i see record attendance Still now, maybe it'll, it'll, it'll go away a little bit when people yeah. say, yeah, we're now used to going back to conferences. But right now, it's still, for the next coming week, some of the events I'm going to, record attendance because people want to see people and network with people. Now, imagine what manifests this next week. You'll be out there. And that is, I, I'm sure it's going to be record attendance for that as well. Yeah, it is. I, I think the manifesto should be about twice the number of people last year. Um, some good content. Um, a lot of people reaching out. I know I got my dance book pretty full because nice. uh, people do want to make good use of their time and they know that kind of a lot of people are going to be there. So if you look at, at the companies that are going to be there, both on the tech side, I know there's several people from Freight Waves there. I know Craig's mm-hmm. going to be there as well. Um, yeah, it should be really interesting. And uh, we're still early in the year, right? There's a lot of conferences to go. Yep. Um, but yeah, should be, should be a good year. Um, it's not going to be an easy year. Right? I'd always tell people it's like, don't, don't think everything is going to be very easy this year. Right. I don't think we'll ever have any more easy years. I think it's done. We're done with the easy years. Uh, I hope we're not, but we, we might be, um, it's going to be, a, it's, it's not going to be an easy year for the, the freight markets. Uh, I think there's pockets that are, are maybe insulated a little bit. You know, I, I think um, a, a lot of companies will sit back, kind of review what went right and what went wrong during during the last couple of years and decide on investments to uh, to streamline operations and, and part of the operations, of course, supply chain, logistics. So I think um, on the tech side, I, I think it is, it's not going to be an easy year, but I, I think it's it's going to be a, a good year. Well, I do hope so. I think um, I wouldn't say I necessarily think it's going to be a good year, but I think what I do see, it's like a storm, right? Mm-hmm. The thing is, when you go through a storm, you weather through the storm, you're going to come out stronger. Unfortunately, yes. like in a storm, um, some ships might sink, right? <laughs> so that's the other part, right? We are going to see at the end of all of this, uh, we, we're going to see maybe a different market, right? Not everyone's going to make we, – unfortunately, we've already seen the last year, right? You see mm-hmm. bankruptcies. You see companies disappearing. You see technology vendors either going out of the market because they run out of funding or they're getting acquired. So there's going to be consolidation. But, but again, every disruption also leads to a new opportunity. So I think just as much as where we see maybe companies disappearing, consolidation – going to see other companies appearing in the market and you still see investment in the market right you still see large acquisitions you still see uh investment being done uh and i think there was just a conference last week where they did a short survey and and most of the investors that were at that conference 
said, yes, we are going to continue to do mergers and acquisitions. And yes, we're going to continue to, at least at the same rate of last year, continue to invest. So with some people that think the market's completely changed, there's no more investment going on, there's no more acquisitions. Nope, that's not true, but people are pickier, right? So there are some technologies out there that I, I think it's it's been easy for them to raise money, but I, the, their business use cases might not be fully developed yet. Is it going to be hard for them to raise another round of funding? Is it going to be much harder than it was the last couple of years? And are they at a danger of running out of cash at some point? Oh, definitely, right? It's harder to raise money and it's harder to raise money at the valuation that you want because that's the other part, right? It's not just that there isn't money, but you hear companies that I talked to and they said, yeah, we were able to get money, but the valuation they gave us wasn't what we wanted or you know, now you're diluting maybe your previous investors because it wasn't what it was before. That's going to be the issue. But I would say if they, you know, the direct result of being able to create a good value and use case around it is that you continue to sell, mm-hmm. right? Now, I think everyone's agreed that no matter what industry you're in, with a couple of exceptions, is that people will see maybe even if they were growing very fast, um, see that that growth rate slow down. But that doesn't mean it's a bad growth rate, right? If you're saying, hey, I was growing at 80%, now we're growing at 40 or 60%. That's still pretty darn good. Mm-hmm. It's just not what you expected two years ago. So companies need to, to adjust and they need to do um, what's right for the company, what's right for the investors. And if they see that you are, uh, I would say, take care of your fiduciary responsibilities of leading a company that continues to be strong, has a clear path, because that's the other thing, not just to a path of growth, but a clear path to profitability, they'll mm-hmm. continue investing. And that's something two years ago that you didn't hear that much. It was like, grow, grow, grow. No matter what you do, grow. Yeah, uh, It was a little bit less around profitability. Now, the whole thing, they said, get to profitability, right? Yeah, get get to profitability. That that's that's key. The, the sales, uh, collecting customers, collecting logos is, is key as well. Um, and I, I think... Companies, tech companies that are doing that are profitable customers. Well, let's combine those two, I guess, and say bringing on customer, profitable customers or eventually profitable customers are going to be the ones who thrive, raise their next rounds at a higher valuation. And those with, you know, not, not quite as strong of a sales game who aren't building that book of business and heading toward profitability or the ones in danger, right? It doesn't matter how great the technology is or how aspirational. Um, it does come down to collecting profitable customers and profitable business. Yeah. And and even uh, people were thinking like IPOs and SPACs weren't going to happen this year, right? Because it is such a challenging year. Mm-hmm. And then as V at uh, Freitas proved yep. us wrong, right? They just went live uh, yesterday on the stock yep. market. So uh, although when you see how they open the, the evolution throughout the, the, the day, it's a little bit like a yo-yo, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit, obviously, after one day, it's a little bit um, too early. But it's it's good to see that it still happens, right? That companies are still uh, doing these um, uh, these transactions and that people believe in that. So uh, I think they're, the great thing we have is that we're in logistics uh, and that there's still a lot of trust in the importance of logistics, a lot of investment in logistics. I don't think that's going to waver. I don't think that's ever going to go back to what it was. Because I know when I started, people go like, logistics? What the heck are you doing in logistics, right? Now you say that and people go like, wow, that's cool. You're doing logistics, right? And um, so I think we finally have our spot on the map. And I think we've got one of the best spots. And we have a lot of opportunity because we 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 did come from behind, right? We mm-hmm. we didn't have the evolution that manufacturing went through or some other areas. So we have a lot of catch up, and that means that there's still much more untapped opportunity, maybe in some other supply chain functions. So from that perspective, um, I'm I'm still very optimistic around what can happen, but it's not going to be easy, right? It's it's going to be it's like a boxing match, right? You might come mm-hmm. out winning. But that doesn't mean you're not going to get an uppercut or you're not going to get beat down and maybe hit the mat a couple of times. But it's all about how resilient you are and get back up and keep going. Um, And I think it's always been the case. It takes a lot of grit, right, for any company. 
Uh, and that's what makes uh, winners and losers always talk about, you know, Titans are made in period of disruption, not when yep. things go easily. Yep. So Amazon, a good example the, of that, right? Yeah. How long did it take them to become profitable? And probably people would have written them off, even their own employees. How many people didn't quit that company because they weren't making money and now probably go like, oh, it could have been worth $100 million. Who, who, what company was that? Amazon. Oh, yes, Amazon. Yes, that's yeah. a perfect example of it. Took them, what, 15 or 16 years yep. to, to make their first profit? Look where mm-hmm. they're at now. I know. It's, and their stock price has gone through two or three cycles of huge losses, maybe 70 80% from its previous high. Just keep chugging along. Yeah. And, and remember, you know, when you talk about technology, right, people in the beginning thought the guy was crazy. It's like, Yep. Who's ever going to order? You remember, who's ever going to order something online? That's what people I used know, to say. Books. Who's now you go books? like, yeah. Have you ever talked to someone that, that you talk to? And when you ask them, do you buy online? They said, I've never bought anything online. Do, do those people still exist, at least in the Western world? I don't think so. I, I, I really don't think so. I, I think most people prefer to, to buy things they can online. And Amazon has a lot of those things. Yeah. The good thing is when they buy them online, they all need shipping. <laughs> they do. And that's where yeah, we all do. come in, right? At, at least one-way shipping. That's right. Oftentimes, it's two-way shipping. That's right. To to the consumer and back to the warehouse. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, Bart, thanks for uh, stopping by. I put that coffee down uh, this afternoon. It's always great talking to you. And, you know, have fun out in Manifest. Hope everything goes well for Project 44 and yourself in 2023. And um, we'll catch up again soon. Sounds great, Kevin. And I have an idea for you for another show because yeah. this one is put the coffee down. Yeah. And then one a show for Friday afternoon is pick that beer up. Pick that beer up. Or that yeah, like could that. be the glass of wine or the whiskey or whatever, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, pick that cocktail up. Awesome. Very good. Kevin, always great talking to you. Have a great weekend. You too. Thank you, Bart.